My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Now playing the Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a fella a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. Stuart, the boy reviewer. You are a vicious bastard. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> And the clown prince of podcasting, Arnie. I am the world's first fully functioning homicidal artist. Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film, ending with a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Now, the real game begins. What are you protecting me from? Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. Here we go. Get the funk up! Today we're discussing Batman. Starring Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, Kim Basinger, Robert Wool, and Pat Hingle. Directed by Tim Burton. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, doing the Bat Dance. <laughs> hey Ducky, please don't put your 7-inch in this computer. It's Stuart in L.A. You ever podcast with the devil by the pale moon's light? Well, if not, here's your chance. The devil himself, Jacob. And after last time dealing with Batman 66, I think we're getting to the movies people really think of when they think of the first Batman film. Yes, the theatrical invention of him. I mean, Batman 66 was a way of selling a TV show to foreign markets. It didn't conceive of a superhero in a giant theatrical way. It just kind of did what the show did. But this this was an attempt to do epic. And it's hard to imagine at this point. But in 1989, superheroes were just not commercial. They were relegated to TV and cartoons. I mean, think about it. There was Howard the Duck. And there was Superman. And by this time, Superman had flamed out. You know, part three and four had pretty much put the kibosh on that. And Punisher and Salinger's Captain America, they weren't going to get to American theaters either. So truly, this was considered a big gamble to go all out for Batman. And it took years and years to do. They'd been trying to make this since... The late 70s. I mean, they talked about bringing Batman to theaters, talked about Batman in outer space. Oof. 
after the success of Superman, they tried a lot of different things. And then finally, it was when Frank Miller came out with The Dark Knight Returns, a non-canonical take of Batman that they finally, I think, saw a way to bring Batman to modern audiences. And by modern, I do mean late 80s, which requires some contextualizing right there alone, where... I think after the stock market crash of 87, the heyday of the big 80s had started to wane and we were kind of in a darker period. Things weren't so good economically. The recession we were gearing up would be at war a year later. So it's not the peak of the 80s with the neon and the big hair, but it's that later period where we're all a little hungover off of the gluttony we suffered for seven to eight years. Well, you look at Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns came out around the same time as Alan Moore's Watchmen, two pivotal works in the comic book industry, late 80s, very dark. And Dark Knight Returns wouldn't make sense without what we just did last week. I mean, Batman 66 had tainted Batman so much. He was always that day glow, out in the daytime, bright, happy, campy superhero. And Miller really wanted to try to reclaim him and make him dark again, to try to take him back to those noir roots of the 40s where he started. Also, the film producers that ended up making this Batman, John Peters and Peter Goober, they fought for that vision, too. They were always hooked into that, and they had Batman throughout the 80s. That was the version they wanted to make. It was everyone else that said, no, 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 Batman is silly, Batman is goofy. I think it's because we had no reference for Batman to be taken seriously on film. You know, looking at the serials, looking at the TV show, he was always a laugh. So Hollywood wanted Ivan Reitman and Bill Murray to do this after. Ghostbusters as sort of a continuation of that kind of supernatural comedy. You know, that was the versions they kept pitching back, but Peter Goober and John Peters, they insisted that this could be dark, and they wound up setting up a movie in 85, almost got made at Warner Brothers, but they stayed at Warner Brothers, which is also home to Tim Burton, also home to Prince, and where the whole thing eventually kind of found its footing. And it's interesting because Burton got working on this right after Pee-wee's Big Adventure. That was his first big movie, and he worked on this for years, but they actually didn't greenlight it and sign a contract until right after Beetlejuice opened and he'd proven, yeah, he could make a successful movie, and this was going to be his third feature. That blew me away when I was researching this, because I love Pee-wee's Big Venture, love Beetlejuice. There's no way he was like a new director when this came out, right? No, he was new to the game. I agree with you. I was a huge Tim Burton fan before this movie came out, and it wasn't until I went back, I'm like, was it really just because of Pee-wee and Beetlejuice? And the answer is yes. Yeah, I don't think they set out to make the biggest movie of all time, budget-wise. They ended up doing that. In 1989, this thing hit $40 million, and I think that was considered the most expensive movie ever made, but they wanted somebody that was thrifty. Burton came from animation, so they figured, oh, that's kind of like a comic book, and his first two movies didn't cost that much. He worked well with limitation. It was also a way of doing it on the cheap. We kind of talked about that with John Favreau. We like your sensibilities, and you don't cost that much. I think it was both elements here that made Burton the choice. It wasn't certainly because Peters and Goober got along with Burton. In fact, it was a very acrimonious shoot, and a lot of strife with between what they wanted and what Burton wanted. Probably also worth pointing out that Burton is not a fan of the comic book. He freely admitted that he was not a reader of Batman. Yeah, he claims he read The Dark Knight and The Killing Joke, and that's what convinced him to do this movie. And they had a lot of influence on where he takes this movie. It's dark. 
If that's what influenced to have something dark, then yeah, it's a darker take. I think of Tim Burton as someone particularly early in his career, when he was still considering probably in his head, I'm an animator first, that he wanted to make cartoons real. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I mean, you can't get more spastic than Paul Rubens doing Pee-wee, and their sensibilities just married so well in that movie. And Beetlejuice, too, was also just, you know, a way of making Looney Tunes live action. When Beetlejuice showed up on screen, you felt like anything could come out of him. And I think that was the appeal of Batman. It was a way of taking iconic comic book cartoon characters and doing a similar thing, making comics real, but not necessarily making the comic book story actualized on screen. And I think that made a lot of comic book fans nervous. They certainly were very nervous when they heard Michael Keaton was cast. Oh, yeah. I was also a Michael Keaton fan at this time. Mr. Mom? I knew him for Mr. Mom. The Dream (laughs) Team? Yes. Beetlejuice. I mean, I saw just about everything the man did, but nothing made me think Batman. And let's face it, when we see Tim Burton, director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Michael Keaton, I honestly was not interested in this movie when it came out because I'd seen campy 60s funny Batman, and I didn't want to see that anymore. And so it took some convincing to get me into theaters for this that summer. I mean, that summer was a big summer. I think we've talked about how big that summer is, and I was big into Star Trek. You can listen to our Star Trek retrospective series to hear all about that. This summer, the number one movie for me was Star Trek V. Number two was Indiana Jones. Number three was Lethal Weapon. I don't even know that Batman cracked the top five. Well, I think you're in the minority there. Yes, because I saw Star Trek V in theaters. <laughs> I just remember the hype around this. You know, I was 12. This is the first time I would watch Entertainment Tonight because they would have some five-minute piece on the set of Tim Burton's Batman. And I got so hyped up for this thing. You know, how many times did you see Howard the Duck in theaters? <laughs> Too many. You know, back then, movies stayed out longer, and I remember this was out for quite a while, but I saw this movie a ton. This is the movie that got me into comic books. This is why I'm on this retrospective as the comic book guy, because I saw this movie and was so hyped up about it, I had to start buying comic books. Reading more about Batman, getting into the Punisher and Wolverine, and it just spiraled out of control from there. And I was equally hyped for Batman for different reasons, not from a comic book angle, from a movie reason. This was the first summer, I think, that I started really every weekend going out to see a movie in the summer. I think I literally saw something every week from May until August. And that was new to me. You know, I was really getting into movies. I was learning about directors. I was reading Premiere Magazine and behind the scenes. And so having all of this hype and build up around the biggest movie of the summer, I thought this was going to be really amazing, and I got very into it. I think the biggest reason why, it seems not very creative at this point, but it was mind-blowing the way that they marketed this movie with minimalism back in the day. All they had to do to throw up on the poster? Bat logo. That was it. The date and the bat logo. And that was revolutionary. I remember going to the theater at Christmas 88, pointing to the poster and saying to my parents, do you know what that is? And them going, no. What does that mean? What is this? It created mystery. Then came the shirts. Everybody in 1989 that I knew was wearing a Bat logo shirt, including me for about a couple weeks until I realized that I was feeling sheep mentality and, <laughs> and it wasn't so cool. But I think someone actually made fun of me at the mall and then I took it off and never wore it again. But I, I was totally into it. I had the bubblegum cards, read the novelization. I read everything I could about the making of it. I stopped short of buying the soundtrack. Wasn't so into Bat Dance, but I was definitely hyped for the movie. What's 
funny is I got into some of that stuff you mentioned after the movie. Never too huge. I did get the soundtrack. I kind of thought Prince was done by this point. We've talked about how when you're young, a few years seems like forever. And I hadn't heard about Prince since Doves Were Crying in, what, 84? So when they got Prince, I really was like, oh my God. And before this movie ever came out, I'll never forget this. The end of that year of high school, I was getting up in the morning for finals in spring of 89. Turn on MTV because I was never up that early to cram for something. They're playing the bat dance video, and I'm like, I do not want to hear Prince screaming, get the funk up at me, when I'm waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning to cram for finals. I was just in a bad mood about this whole Batman thing, but the Prince music did grow on me. I ended up getting the CD maybe late that fall when I was in that Columbia house, eight CDs for a penny club. (laughs) And I picked up the novelization one day just out of lack of something better to read. But no, I must be the one person you knew who's not in a bat shirt. My girlfriend had a bat retainer. I think it truly had to do with the fact that at that point in time, as I recall, you were so into Star Trek. And that was the movie for you. Star Trek V, same summer. That was the film for you. And, of course, Indiana Jones, another big one. Ghostbusters 2, it was a huge summer, no doubt about it. I think that it was something to see every week that did, in some level, become iconic. When Harry Met Sally, Dead Poet Society, even The Abyss. I mean, it was a big summer. But this was the biggest. It ended up being the biggest box office. Definitely had the biggest hype. Huge anticipation for how they were going to render this comic book character on the screen. How it could beat Look Who's Talking still confounds me. But (laughs) Hey, that was number four for that year. It was big, yeah. I remember that one too. So Arnie, why don't you tell them what we did see? Give them a plot. As a boy, Bruce Wayne's parents were killed in a mugging, and scarred by this, Bruce Wayne has grown up to be Batman, a masked, body-armored vigilante who's trying to single-handedly rid Gotham of the crime that plagues the streets. Batman is considered mostly a rumor, but is being investigated by the mayor, the new DA, Harvey Dent, as well as newspaper reporter Alexander Knox, who's aided by photographer Vicki Vale, who came to Gotham to find Batman, but ends up dating Bruce Wayne. The head of the crime families is Grissom, and his number one guy is Jack Napier, who is also stooping Grissom's girl, so Grissom sets up Jack to be killed in a job gone bad. But the job gets worse when Batman intervenes, knocking Jack into a vat of acid. Jack is presumed dead, but he emerges alive but scarred, his skin white, his hair green, and his face frozen in an evil grin. Now calling himself Joker, he returns and kills Grissom and some other crime lords, taking over as Crime Lord of Gotham. And worse, he wants to make the residents of the city deformed as well. He's mixed ingredients and beauty products, and when used in combination, they form a drug called Smilex, which makes people laugh and then die with the Joker's frozen grin. Joker has also set his sights on Vicky Vale, going on several demented dates with the photographer as his idea of courtship. Batman reveals Joker's formula, so Joker decides to gas the citizens of Gotham with Smilex during a parade. Batman thwarts that plan as well with the Batplane, which Joker takes out with a single bullet. I'm sure we'll talk about that. And the two end up going fist to fist. Joker kidnaps Vale again and goes to the top of a church tower, where he again fights Batman and ends up falling off the side to his death. Crime having been defeated... Batman provides the city with a bat signal to call him if he's ever needed again, while he as Bruce Wayne continues his relationship with Vicky, who knows his true identity as Prince Music plays and credits roll. And I mentioned Prince Music. We've talked about Prince Music a lot in this. I did pick up the Prince CD. But when the movie starts, it's not Prince we're hearing. It's Oingo Boingo. Yes. 
Batman may not have influenced my life in 89, but this score changed me forever. This Danny Elfman theme made me a movie score connoisseur and collector. And this was the first non-Star Wars, non-Star Trek music score I owned. And I will go on to own every Danny Elfman CD ever released. I've always got a soft place in my heart for Danny Elfman because I love Oingo Boingo. But yeah, this score, it's amazing. Like, it's so iconic now. And I haven't seen this movie in decades. And sitting down, like, as soon as I heard the first couple of notes, it all came right back to me. Danny Elfman scores always sound like carnivals that have gone out of control. And that's great for this because, you know, we got a clown as the bad guy. He's the perfect choice, but not an obvious one. And if he didn't have the affiliation he had with Burton, you know, if they hadn't already worked on two previous movies, they probably wouldn't have gotten this guy to do it. But I'm so glad he did because when I think about the Batman movies, I'm humming his theme. And, of course, I'm thinking of Burton's gothic Art Deco style. Those two things really go hand in hand. And at the start of this movie, this score, Burton's look, I'm into the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I'll agree with you also. At this point, it can get confusing whether you're hearing Batman, Darkman, Nightbreed, or Beetlejuice. They (laughs) all do have that same quality. He would eventually both grow and become more bland. But yes, here, this is the one that is the most iconic. And Burton's imagery, this gothic look for Gotham City, was astounding. I mean, it's so expensive and inventive to just not say, hey, let's put a dark lens filter and film in Chicago. No, these are giant sets. You know, they went to Pinewood, which if you've listened to our Alien podcast, that's where they made the first three versions of that movie, too. There's something about the craftsmanship over there. There's huge sets and to the scale and detail that they do it. And what they don't build, they disguise so well with matte painting. It's an immersive and total experience. I'm glad they didn't shoot it on location. I'm glad they didn't shoot it on the back lot. Pinewood is just the right gank, dark London atmosphere that we want for our gothic hero. Even though I guess what Gotham is supposed to be New York. Or, or a thinly veiled version of New York. I do think Chicago's a huge influence for Gotham City. With the crime lords, keep in mind this was developed in the 40s. Al Capone, Chicago, hell, our governors still go to jail if they're from there. But, I mean, you think big city, you think tall buildings. New York has Chicago hands down beat. But crime, mafia, Al Capone, Chicago... We talk about all those gangster elements, and one of the things I like about the aesthetic of this movie is that, yeah, it's modern times, but it's still also kind of 30s and 40s. The way the cops are outfitted, kind of with those waistcoats, like it's not modern day, but it's not a period piece. This is Burton trying to make a comic book page come to life, not necessarily adapting it to real life, but with real people. Yeah, I think that he's taking a lot of inspiration from that period in time, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. I see film noir in this. I see the German films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu and Metropolis. I see crime gangster films in all of this. It really lives within the movies of the time, not just the time period as they actually would be, but sort of are the way that we remember them now when we go back to old movies. I also think that there's just this technique of trying to make films feel timeless. And so they're modern, but you can't peg a year by not using the latest models of cars, by not going with the latest trends in fashion. Here, they definitely went a bit older, but you couldn't really peg 
even down to a decade for a lot of this. The only thing that took me out of this whole movie and made me realize it was old is that Vicky Vale's using film. <laughs> that was the only anachronism in this whole movie for me. Well, and that there's a thriving newspaper industry. <laughs> True. <laughs> I didn't see a cell phone, but your point is valid. It does feel timeless because they've gone with classic looks, classic cars, classic costumes. All of this feels like, yeah, it could have existed in any time period. And, and I like that it creates an alternate world by the same token it's 1989 you said gotham city is new york to you keep in mind around this same time jason took manhattan and when we start in this opening scene with the two parents and the kid going down the street and the kid who's like eight is getting hit on by hookers this is again what i thought would happen if i went to times square you know this was big cities to me even though i was living in florida at the time it was like this is what new york was like with the druggies mugging you and then hanging out on rooftops well it was actually in the 80s the new york was very different from giuliani 90s so it was a very dank depressing place i think that's probably accurate and you're right that is the perception of visitors to new york and people that didn't live there was that it was this haven for crime. The beginning, did you guys get fooled? You know, it's been a while since I've seen this movie. I thought for sure we were watching the backstory. I was fooled when I first watched this at 12 because I knew what the backstory was. I did grown up with cartoons and that. But this time, no, because they don't call the dad Thomas, which is Bruce's dad. Yeah, when they call him Jimmy, I caught on, but not before. I don't know Batman's backstory. I'd seen the cartoons where Robin was voiced by Casey Kasem, and I'd seen the old Adam West show. I never knew Batman's parents died. So watching this the first time, I'm just taking it in. It's funny watching it this time because I remember now in this movie that the parents were killed in an alley. I was like, oh, we start with the death of the parents. I didn't remember that. And then, yes. So it's a fake out that gets me on subsequent viewings, but only the comic fans who know the origin would be faked out the first time, I think. Yeah, it's telling you in advance. They're creating it in a suspenseful moment so that when they do it in flashback, we get it. You know, it's like we get to process it again because it's kind of strange. Batman is already established at the beginning of this movie. He's looking down as the muggers take out this couple and their son as they leave the theater. And we're run right into the movie. There's no, oh, and I fell in down the well and the bats and none of that. I mean, he's already there. He's dropping down and he's, I don't know. Is that kicking ass? It's kicking ass as best you can when you can hardly move mummified in rubber. <laughs> I'm sorry. This Batman is horrible. He watches a couple get mugged, and then he kind of hangs out, waits for the muggers to climb up on this building, and then beats him up. And it's a PR stunt, I think. He beats him up, so they'll tell other people about him, and then he leaves. And good thing the cops show up to arrest him, I guess, because he sure didn't tie him up. I'm going to say it right now. I'm divorcing myself. This is not a comic book Batman. To keep my sanity watching this film, <laughs> I have to approach this as Tim Burton's making this movie about crazy people that dress up that just happens to be called Batman. Because there's nothing heroic. Batman's entrance is that he watches a couple get mugged. Well, there's no doubt about it. This Batman is very passive. It will be a theme I will come back to again and again. He broods. He doesn't battle. And I think you're right, Arnie. You point out the suit. It's a great looking suit. It is a suit worthy of a silent movie. However, when it is time to actually fight in this opening, you can just get the sense the man can't even turn his head. He can't move <laughs> around. 
He drops down on wires, he grabs him by the shirt collar, and he disappears because, really, he couldn't do much else. I agree with you. The suit looks phenomenal. I remember thinking that then. That's one of the things that got me to the theaters was just the look of the outfit and how modern and dark it was for the time. But as for what he's doing, yeah, I think what he's trying to do is not stop two criminals by turning them over to the cops, but stop a hundred criminals by continuing the rumors because he's trying to make people talk and afraid of the bat. And so he is waging a PR campaign, basically. Would you say this is the first couple of weeks he's busted out the suit? Maybe he's not confident yet. Maybe this is the very first time that he's actually, well, no, because they say there's one person that's been drained of blood. It's hard to know what has happened because it's already become urban and legend. They're saying one guy was drained of blood and that Batman is like a vampire implying almost. I don't know how long it's been, but it's fairly recently. We skip that origin story or, you know, we don't get the falling into the well and being scared by bats. Watching it this time, it kind of intrigued me. I've said it in the past. I'm sick of origin stories. There's got to be a way to do a superhero story. Do we have to watch an origin story every time? So I'm intrigued. They're approaching this as this mystery. There's this weird vampiric character going around beating up criminals. And what is this mystery? Who is this person? Like, I'm kind of intrigued that they're skipping that origin or they're going to go about it roundabout and they're going to set this up more as a mystery. I'm with you, Jacob, because I didn't used to be sick of origin stories, but the past year or so of now playing and I'm like, okay, enough with the origin stories. I love that this movie just gets into it. But let's face it. This is an origin story that's a lot easier to explain away and one that's far more well known. Rich guy dresses up like a bat and has a bunch of gadgets. We don't have to explain why he shoots beams from his eyes or why he can fly or any of that. It's a very mundane origin story so far as origin stories go. Kind of similar to what they did the same year with The Punisher, too, is that origin story was kind of skipped over because it's equally mundane. I like the fact that we start this movie with Batman, and it is not Batman Begins. It's a mystery, and, you know, I think about movies from the time period, noir, detective stories, DC, isn't that detective comics? I mean, all of that feels in keeping. I haven't gone back and read any of the Bob Kane Batman, but I'm thinking that this might be kind of what it's like, or at least how I'd want to see it. I'm totally down. But this is an origin story. It's an origin story for the character that they actually care more about. The other one in this movie. The one that gets top billing. The one that got paid. A lot. Oh my god. Jack Nicholson. I can't believe how much he got paid. Unprecedented. Not only did he get a big upfront, he got a cut of the merchandise, he got a cut of the movie. And not just for Batman, for Batman Returns and Batman Forever. I mean, this thing paid out for Jack Nicholson. Wait, he got paid for movies he wasn't in? Uh Uh-huh, that was part Ah. of the deal. He did not want to do this. I read that it is still the largest paycheck for any actor for a single movie. So, yes, he was convinced by the Benjamins to saddle up as the Joker. And yeah, it is an origin story. That's perhaps part of the reason why I'm sick of hero origin stories, is they always take place in parallel to villain origin stories. And so there's always the two. Here, Batman is out there. He's stopping muggers. So yes, we have Jack Napier, crime boss who loves purple. And I like Nicholson in these early scenes. I like that 
He's playing kind of to type as a mobster. You know, I'd seen by this point Prizzy's Honor and, of course, The Shining and Jack Nicholson in at least a dozen other roles. So seeing him as a mobster who dressed flashy and was a little bit underhanded was right what I would expect from him. Absolutely. This is feeding into his whole persona. You know, the crazy man from the 70s. You know, even though he's gotten more respectable, he has Oscars now. He's a big, big star. You still think of him as someone that is completely out of control. That's crazy. The fact that his character name is Jack here, it almost is like there's no difference between his on-screen and off-screen persona. He's Jack the crazy guy that'll do anything. And that helps, I think. I don't know who else could come into the role and carry it with the same amount of danger. You know, there's other people that could be goofy. I know Robin Williams really wanted this part. Tim Curry wanted this part. There's people that could get the comedy, but the comedy that's actually threatening, I think Nicholson works best. Yeah, it's not just a... Robin Williams riffing like he does as the genie in Aladdin. That is not the Joker. There needs to be that danger. It's that fear of clowns, and I, I guess that's what the Joker's playing on, is that it's supposed to be happy and smiling, but there's something menacing about that, and Nicholson brings that. He doesn't even need the makeup to come off menacing here. No, and indeed, it's a half hour before he does get transformed. <laughs> we do see him in sort of a... I don't know, this kind of a generic setup. I gotta say, it's not particularly exciting to find out he's sleeping with a girl of the guy who's his boss. Just get me to the toxic waste. I mean, he's the number one guy for crime boss, Grisham. And you know what? He's banging his girlfriend, so Grisham's gonna knock him off? Okay, I don't know. If it's your number one guy, uh, I don't know if you let a girl. Bros before hoes, you know? Well, that's what Jack says when he comes back, too. (laughs) You did it over a woman! So he agrees with you. I can see Grissom's point, though. (laughs) I think they wanted a plot that could bring all of the supporting characters into this. We also have Commissioner Gordon. We have, for some reason that I'll never understand, Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent. The reason is he knows that he'll become Two-Face in a later movie. He only agreed because he wanted to be a featured villain later on. Right. Okay. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But they needed to have this whole underworld plot so they could get all of these people involved. Because truthfully, all that we really need to see happen is Jack get dropped into the toxic waste by Batman. That's what we're building towards. But they make that the act one climax. I'm actually enjoying it, though, because it is the introduction to this world, to this style, to these characters. Yes, there are a lot of characters in here. We've got the mayor, the commissioner, the DA, a lot of different crime bosses. But let's talk about this cast. Every single person who's playing these roles, from Billy D to Jack Palance, who I didn't know at the time from anything, but now I do... He's a year from City Slickers and winning the Oscar. But yeah, he was a villain in Westerns. He's always kind of the bad guy. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah. He's always that hyperventilating weirdo. I never liked him, but. And even Eckhart, he's Porkins from Star Wars. I met him one time and he went on and on about his role in Batman. But I think part of it could be because they're filming over in England and, you know, that's where Star Wars was made as well. But. This entire cast is drawing me in with their performances. Jack Nicholson is stealing the show, but all the rest of them, I enjoy this first act 
with them before the fit hits the shan. There seems to be a lot of scene chewing going on here, not just from Nicholson, but from Palance. Everything seems very gangster to me. Like I watch those old black and white films and that's how it feels. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying this is world-class acting. I'm saying it's setting a mood and it's pulling it off pretty well. It's trying to harken back to that genre. And I think it's doing a good job early on. You know, I thought Warren Beatty was absolutely crazy when he said Batman inspired him to make Dick Tracy. Because to me at the time, I was like, they're nothing alike. How could he think that that's the same thing? But actually, I get it now. What I had forgotten about this Batman was it was so much playing into a Warner Brothers crime movie, public enemy, something from that period. It does feel like, yeah, maybe no one does fall into toxic waste. Maybe it's just all Tommy guns and dames and detectives. It is almost not sci-fi enough for me. I wanted to get to the toxic waste first, but I guess you're right. These scenes create mood, but I feel like they unnecessarily burden the plot. They, they hold us back from what we want to see. They hold us back from the plot. I don't know that they hold us back from what we want to see because during this half hour, even this last viewing, which I can't count how many times I've seen it in the past 23 years, but it's kind of like just easing into a warm bath. I enjoy letting this world flow over me. And this world and Burton's vision and Elfman's score is what I want to see, not necessarily what we get after that first half hour. Oh, I hear what you're saying. It goes down easy. It's not like I'm disliking it. I don't mean to give that impression. What I'm saying is now as an adult, now that I know where it's going, now that I know the characters, I know, I want to get to it. And it, it takes a while. It takes a surprising while for them to have Batman, what, create Joker? That's my first question here. You know, we get to Axis Chemicals. And for convoluted reasons... That I could never understand. I kept rewinding. I have no idea how Axis Chemicals could undo Grissom, but it was all a setup anyway. I'm glad you guys had that same problem, because I remember watching this as a kid. I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. Espionage? I don't even know what that word is. And I'm watching (laughs) it this time, and I'm like... I still don't know how this is playing into the plot. (laughs) And that's what I mean. This plot in this beginning is not that great. It would be better if things seem to be happening for a reason, but it's simply, oh, you're cheating on my woman. Let me send you to this place. And there are corrupt cops and other people coming in and out of all of this. Long story short, Nicholson has been set up and the cops are there. And so is Batman. This is the first big face-off. And Batman, I gotta ask... Does he accidentally drop Joker into that waste, or did he purposely let him go? I have a hard time believing that he couldn't lift Nicholson up. I mean, Nicholson's kind of a big guy in this, but it's Batman. Maybe the problem is that it's Keaton under the suit there. He's not a big guy. But the way it's filmed, I always took it as, you know, Jack was wearing gloves and the grip slipped. But watching it this time, you don't see the grip slip. You see Batman has him, and then Batman doesn't, and... This is kind of a homicidal Batman in this movie. Oh, and not kind of. Again, this is why I'm divorcing Burton's Batman from DC Batman, because this Batman has no problems with taking someone out. And we'll get that later on. In the comic, this is a character who saw his parents murdered in front of him. And yeah, he used a gun a couple of times, but eventually swears off guns. And he would never kill any. Like his whole purpose is to stop people from killing other people. That's a code he can't break. So different Batman in Burton's film here. Burton definitely wants to create the pair right here in this scene and throughout the movie that there isn't much difference 
between Joker and Batman, that they're both kind of crazy. So yeah, the fact that Batman comes off a little homicidal, I think is in keeping with the idea that you have to be a little crazy to put on a bat suit and fight crime, right? And this is something that came out in Alan Moore's Killing Joke, which Burton said was one of those comics he read that made him want to do this, is Alan Moore, I think, really popularized, really spelled out the theory that Batman and the Joker are the same people. Just different side of the coin. One obeys the law just a little bit more, but they're both equally crazy. Yeah. At the end of the day, I don't see Batman as, yes, noble or a protector, per se. I see him as a brooding psychotic working out <laughs> his issues, much like Joker is working out his issues. Yeah, especially this Burton Batman. We get that his parents die. There's no explanation why he decides to dress up as a bat. The only conclusion is this guy's crazy like the Joker. Like, that shocked me. At this point, though, he is not homicide. We heard about the person who dropped off a roof. We don't know the circumstances. Here with Jack, I'm pretty sure Batman loses his grip. I'm pretty sure it was not intended that Batman is like, Ah, screw it. I'll just kill this criminal. You see whatever you want to see. If you want to see a noble Batman, he drops him. If you want to see a Batman that's angry, he says, ah, what's the point of letting him live? The only thing we do know is that he does not know at this point that this man killed his parents. He's not getting revenge. This is not a vengeance move to watch him fall into the toxic waste. He does not know that Jack Napier was, in fact, the guy that offed his parents. And that's why I don't think it was deliberate. It was a slip of the glove, if you will. I think he was legitimately trying to pull them up, trying to save them, have them arrested. Maybe. Then the cops try to arrest Batman, but I like how they keep some of Batman's mysticism, but they show us the tricks. He's like David Copperfield. He has to create the smoke screen by dropping some chemicals so that they don't see he just has a batarang that can haul him up, and it makes it look like he's flying. I like the mystery element, and so I would have liked them to play out that mystery a little bit you know we see him just float in the air after the smoke rises from the ground and we got two reporters in this film why not have them crack the case instead of showing us or have them do something useful <laughs> they do take up enough screen time and from what i can tell they do nothing this is robert wool as alexander knox i knew robert wool at this point for some stand-up he'd done he was in Bull Durham and Good Morning Vietnam. He had memorable bit parts. And then we have Sean Young as Vicky Vale. <laughs> oh, oh, if only she hadn't fallen off that horse. Yes. That's what she says. They actually got her back for the 2005 DVD release. How do you get Sean Young to talk about Batman on DVD? Well, I guess she's not busy. <laughs> they put her in front of a Batman poster and talked about how if she hadn't gotten on that horse, she'd have a better life. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe she would have super glued Michael Keaton's dick to his leg. I don't know. You know, the woman is crazy, and the stories about her and what she had been doing since Blade Runner were not good. You know, they had given her many shots at stardom, No Way Out, The Boost with James Woods was supposed to be this big movie for her. She was, it's hard to believe now, an up-and-coming star who had terrible press on her set. Whether true or not, the belief was that she is really, really a nut job. And she had a huge part in Wall Street, a huge part that Oliver Stone completely excised just out of vengeance towards Sean Young. Yes. I won't take a side. I don't know. We weren't there. But I do know that multiple directors ended up not having nice things to say about Sean Young. But she was, yes, the original Vicki Vale. Kim Basinger stepped in at the last minute because Sean Young was, I think, just 
on a lark. It wasn't for a movie. It wasn't for anything. She just wanted to ride a horse and broke her leg and they were filming and that was the end of it. I've heard two things. I heard it was she was just horse riding for fun. I've also heard that she was actually doing practice with Michael Keaton for a Vicky Vale Bruce Wayne scene that was supposed to be in this movie of the two of them riding a horse and after the accident they're like maybe we won't put the next actress on a horse and they just cut the scene. Oh interesting well there is a horse scene I'll talk about it when we get there later it was cut from the this movie. So that adds credence. Yeah because of the grace of God we get Kim Basinger. Instead of Sean Young, Vicky Vale. She's not totally worthless. She is the girlfriend that the two psychos get to fight over. Uh, she's the love interest. I'm not sure she's much more than that, but this is probably the height of her fame at this point. Kim Basinger, she would go on to win an Oscar for L.A. Confidential. I don't know why. She's <laughs> done many movies. She was a Bond girl. But ultimately, I think that this is how most people remember her. I forget she's in this movie a lot, and I'll just always remember her as Alec Baldwin's shrew of a wife. <laughs> I can't say much about her performance. Yes, yeah, she is the girlfriend. I don't get why she's interested in Bruce or why Bruce is interested in her. They meet when Bruce is having a fundraiser for a parade for Gotham. He's having a gambling night. The two of them meet cute. It is a kind of a funny way that they meet. She's asking Bruce Wayne where Bruce Wayne is and touring his house. I do like that meeting. I don't see what these two see in each other. Well, I'm guessing it's because the character is basically Lois Lane, and that worked in Superman. I mean, that's how she was written in the comics. It's odd that they picked Vicki Vale, seeing that she had, by this time, been written out of comic book continuity for Batman, and they kind of had to bring her back because of this movie. But yeah, there's not a whole lot of characterization for her. Why? I, I don't know, because he's a millionaire, a billionaire. Isn't that what gets chicks turned on? It did in the 80s. Yeah, but that's not why she likes Michael Keaton. Why does anyone like Michael Keaton? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and get into the biggest part of this. Michael Keaton is Bruce Wayne Batman. I'm not getting a lot out of him. And I know that at the time, this downplaying of his whole personality was a big acting feat. He was the wild and crazy guy from Night Shift. He was Beetlejuice. He was the stark raving mad lunatic. And now he's barely giving you anything. But that's kind of a problem here, right? I kind of like him as Bruce Wayne. It kind of goofy and aloof, like the way he plays Bruce Wayne, I like. I don't really have a problem with Keaton. He's just too tiny to be Batman. Batman was never supposed to be Lou Ferrigno. I mean, I always saw him drawn more as an Adam West type. He has an athletic build. He's tall. He is not Michael Keaton. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I really feel like this is Tim Burton's conception of the character, that at the end of the day, this is Batman as goth. You know, when you get to know him, he's a shy, slight fellow, very introverted, and he uses all of this gothic imagery to create an impression of intimidation. But he himself, when you pull back the rubber and the tools and all of that, there isn't much to the guy. He is just really awkward and painfully shy, and that's an interesting take on the character. It doesn't make for a particularly exciting hero. And I think that that is probably something we'll bump into a lot here, in that 
yes, Bale is attracted to him, Batman is supposed to be this hero, but truthfully, that's counterintuitive to the way that Keaton is playing the part Burton has written the story to unfold. Batman really isn't a very active character in this movie, and he's watching other people steal the limelight. Well, he is second build, and I think that's properly so. The film's called Batman, but the movie's about the Joker. That said... I'm not having a huge problem with him. I do agree with Jacob. I like him as Bruce Wayne. And as Batman, I like his minimalism. I really do. I don't want the Adam West talkative Batman who's going to stand up and pontificate endlessly. Well, that was comedy. I mean, of course you don't want that. But <laughs> I kind of like what he does with the role. I like the brooding silence. I was a little bit worried that I was going to get Johnny Dangerously out of this. And while I can't say anything draws me to him, I think he's fine. Yeah, I don't get all the hate that he seems to get for playing Batman. He's good. I, again, I like him as Wayne. As Batman, that's fine. Being quiet and brooding. That is Batman. To me, it's just about the physical presence. He doesn't seem intimidating to me. Yeah, he has a scary rubberized fetish suit. And that's about it. Well, at least it doesn't have nipples on it yet. <laughs> yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. We need to re-review the movies, but I think... To this day, and this includes Nolan's, he may be my favorite Batman of the whole five of them or six of them. Your favorite Batman or your favorite Bruce Wayne? I think there is a difference. My favorite Batman. Okay. My problem is that if you're going to have a character that is, as Bruce Wayne, reserved, withdrawn, not giving you anything, putting on the mask should free him to be somebody different. To unlock a side of his personality we do not see. That's what I thought they were playing with. Duality here. He's the exact same character when he puts on the rubber suit that he is when he's walking around the mansion. Well, you should really like the Spider-Man films then when we get to him. Because that's Spider-Man. I mean, that, that's one of the big differences. A lot of people try to draw parallels. These are the two most iconic characters, Spider-Man and Batman. And Batman... He's always in Batman mode, even when he's Bruce Wayne. I mean, Bruce Wayne is the act, the, the billionaire playboy. Batman is who he is, whereas you get Peter Parker, and he's the nerdy, shy scientist, and then he puts on the mask, and he's outgoing and talkative. That's not this character. You don't think it would be helpful to have him be somebody different when he's in plain clothes? I mean, someone that would distract you so that you would think, oh, it couldn't be this guy. Well, he's the millionaire eccentric. Is he a millionaire or a billionaire at this point? He's still just a millionaire, right? I mean, it's the 80s, so a million's still a lot of money. <laughs> he's not as rich as Nicholson. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think he is more outgoing and bumbling as Bruce Wayne. I mean, again, in the party scene, when he's talking to Vale and Knox, and he's like, how many cases do I open? He is pretty talkative, but he's talkative in a stumbling, bumbling, kind of a Jeff Goldblum kind of way. Whereas when he's Batman, he's monosyllabic and barely talks at all. I think there is enough of a difference there. I don't think that he'd necessarily want to go all Tony Stark, but maybe. I could see where that would be something. I think, he, as Bruce Wayne, he just stays out of the public eye as much as possible, more than anything. Yeah, again, it's a goth sensibility here, and it's definitely Burton's. I mean, I really don't see much difference between Edward Scissorhands and Batman, or Nicholson is also playing an artist here who is using his crazy gifts to change the world. I don't know, it is a movie about artists' sensibilities. It really does seem to fit 
Tim Burton's many moves. The only way this movie could get any more Burton is if Johnny Depp was playing Batman. Indeed. And, and if they hadn't met before, who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have been Keaton. But keep in mind, I do think you keep saying this is Burton's film. I think Keaton's here as kind of a security blanket for Burton. He'd worked with Keaton before, put Keaton in a lot of makeup, Elfman. I mean, he's bringing people from his two previous films. People didn't like Keaton. I have to think part of the reason that Burton stood up and said it has to be him was he was comfortable directing Keaton. I mean, I don't know that you want two Jack Nicholsons. And of course, I think everybody's heard the story. Even before my research, I've heard the story of how Jack Palance basically ripped him a new one on the set. So you don't want people who are going to be fighting against you. You want people who will help you when you're doing the biggest film of your career. Yeah, it's very clear a not-so-subtle subtext of this entire movie is commerce and how money corrupts. And I think that is something that Tim Burton is foisting upon the story, that he feels overwhelmed that he's doing this giant Hollywood movie and that he's this little guy who used to sit alone and draw his pictures and turn them in occasionally to get feedback. But now he is working on a much larger scale and working here constantly. The real enemy is greed and Joker plays off of that. I definitely feel that when Joker gets into his plots, we definitely see his sensibility is attacking people for their money love. Yes, but by the same token, you can voice that on Burton, but I just felt it was a very ham-handed way to talk about the issues of the day. I mean, we were coming off of Oliver Stone's Wall Street, Greed is Good. Again, I already mentioned the stock market crash. I think in 89, it was very much in vogue to attack the rich after almost a decade of celebrating them, becoming more meta and getting ready for the grunge 90s where we'd start looking back on the excesses of the 80s with disdain and not with glory. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's all just Burton. And you got to give Sam Hamm a lot of credit, the original screenwriter on this. The first three quarters of the script is his verbatim, and then the last quarter kind of got changed by other people. I don't know if this is as anti-commerce as you're trying to make it out to be. I think there's some definite poking at the me 80s when we get into the Smilex plot and, you know, we're attacking you through your chemicals, through your makeup and deodorant. Yeah, they make the millionaire in this movie boring, but I don't really think they villainized the guy with the most money in this film. You know, Bruce Wayne, he's still the hero. I mean, they still play him up. He's still Batman. I think another target here might be another 80s rise of the plastic surgeon. I mean, after Jack falls into the vat of acid, I don't know why he goes to this doctor, but it's who he had, who was underground and able to supposedly fix his face. And we get the shadowy reveal, which we talked about way back in Punisher Warzone, they ripped off from the scene where Jack goes off laughing at his new visage. It's a tease. They do it many times here. At first, he's just a gloved fist sticking out of the toxic waste and being spat out of Axis chemicals. Then we see him in shadow. He sees his reflection and laughs. We don't see it. He goes to see Jack Palance. He's in shadow, and we just see his vague, whitish face. You know, we can't make it out yet, but we know that it's ashen. And they're definitely building it to getting us to see Joker. They're doing a great job with the tease. Yeah, and I think this is the first time that it's called the perma-smile, where he's scarred to have a smile. Before, the Joker was just kind of a 
the clown. And yes, he'd smile and laugh because he's the Joker. But here they gave him a permanent reason to have that smile. It was a bullet ricochet, right? He fired it at Batman and it bounced off. And it punctured an acid tank, which sprayed on him. So did the acid do it or did the bullet do it? Before he fell into the vat, you could see his face was bloodied and scarred, but he wasn't smiling when he was dangling off Batman's hand. There was no smile there yet. It was whatever the doctor did, really, that screwed him up. Yeah, I always thought the doctor kind of like tried to do a tuck, tuck some of the scars underneath the skin, and that's why he kind of gave him that smile look. But uh, they throw some line out about nerves being totally damaged. I don't know if he was frozen that way or just bad plastic surgery. I mean, did you see the tools he had to work with? And then he does what we all want to do and goes and kills Jack Palance. I'm happy that his wheezing is out of the film. Loved him in City Slickers. Not much of a fan of his here. But this is where we start getting wacky Joker. He's dancing around. He's shooting. He's pirouetting. He's... It's where the movie becomes Jack Nicholson. Obviously, we're spending more building up the Joker than we are Batman. Batman remains a mystery. Joker, we're watching the transformation. But at this point... From this point, it's shining all over again, right? This is him in the last reel of The Shining, totally bat nuts. Nothing is too over the top at this point. I'm sorry, but his performance here makes his Shining performance look like Michael Keaton's performance in Batman. I mean, (laughs) I think they're two different movies here. I think this has a much broader scope than what he was doing in The Shining. My memory of this film watching it in the 80s and 90s, was that he was great, he was evil, he was funny. Watching it, this is my second time in the past couple years, he's really just hammy and chewing up the scenery, isn't he? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I mean, he's not that far from Cesar Romero. I'm just going to put it out there. I agree. Once the Joker shows up, we're sliding back into Batman 66 territory. I agree. I remember thinking in 89 and being told by all my friends, oh, it's such a dark vision. I'm watching this. I'm like, it's not that dark. Really? It's not. It's dark as in there's a lot of shadows. It is literally darkly filmed, but it's not a dark brooding movie very much especially once jack nicholson dons the pancake makeup and starts goofing it up yes the laugh and the lines i was thinking caesar romero also this was actually the criticism i had for the movie at the time i had already known the entire story as it was going to be developed because i had bought all of these trading cards i had read the novelization i had read every behind the scene things i could i knew what the story was going to be my conception of it was probably closer to something like what nolan would do that it would be ghastly that it would be frightening that when you would actually hear him laugh it would send chills down your spine it was a shock to me at the time in the theater, to watch it go so broad, to be so silly. I imagine that's exactly what people in the audience wanted. It's Jack Nicholson. We want him to make us laugh with this devilishness. Witches of Eastwick, Shining, all of that. That's all he ever does. But for me, I really saw a different movie, and I was surprised at how tame this Joker was. There's parts of Nicholson's Joker that I really like. You know, the line, way do they get a load of me? And then he just goes on, he starts hooting like an owl (laughs) like he has those creepy moments where like this is a guy that's totally lost it but then he just goes so far in this movie and and he goes from kind of crazy crazy to just you know Cesar Romero crazy I don't think he can control the guy we talked about this with The Departed he just kind of does what he wants he wants to throw cocaine on hookers in a movie he's gonna throw cocaine on hookers in a movie he's gonna hoot like an owl he's gonna hoot like an owl 
I thought the same thing until I was listening to the director's commentary. Apparently, every take, Nicholson did something different, and Burton picked the ones he wanted for the film. So when he's dancing like a duck, that's what Burton went, yes, that's the scene for my Joker. Well, yes, that's the choice of selection, but direction would be, I want you to do it like this. No one is directing Nicholson, and I guess that's okay. It changes the movie. If I were a director wanting a dark vision, I would be upset. It is becoming something closer to what Robin Williams could do. I would want to keep the menace, but that's my personal style. This was a very expensive movie that needed to hit all bases and all markets. They did right by this. Obviously, this was the the Joker that people wanted to see, but I was disappointed that he, yes, was much more of a clown than he was uh, a criminal. And at the time, he was perfect in my opinion. I loved what he was giving. I was also a big Jack Nicholson fan. I'd seen Witches of Eastwick, which I was not in its demo. Prizzy's Honor. I mean, if I'm seeing Prizzy's Honor when I'm 12, it's because of the star. And seeing him here, this was exactly what I wanted. But my memory of it was so different than what it really is. And seeing it here... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's much more comedic watching it now. I mean, it was a different viewing for me this time. I, I Like I said, I haven't seen this in over 10 years at least. And it, it was a very different take, not being that 12-year-old boy anymore watching this, where he was menacing, where he was scary. I kind of like what he did with it still, though. Jack Nicholson being Jack Nicholson ain't a bad gig. I, I don't mind watching that. There are definitely some highlights. I really enjoyed when he puts on the flesh-colored makeup and goes back to the crime gang and tries to get away with being just a normal guy with a big grin on his face. I think that's a nice bit. True, but lest we put all of it on Nicholson, you want to know what took me most back to 66 Batman was his gang. As soon as he kills Grissom... He goes out and gets, what, embroidered jackets for all of yes, them? Yes, they have branded <laughs> jackets. They have branded cars and helicopters in this movie. This is Batman 66 all over again. That alone right there. No, it's not a realistic Nolan take on this. He wants to know where Batman gets his toys. I wanted to know where he got his. <laughs> what I thought was an odd take with this Joker is that he's an artist and he's sitting around making collages and being obsessed with other photojournalists because he's an artiste. Where did this come from? It was not set up as part of the character in the beginning. Yeah, we needed him painting Grisham's girlfriend in the nude or something in the beginning to set this up. Keaton does read in his profile that he has a acumen for chemistry and art. So we're to understand that it is in his background. But yeah, it would have been nice to set that up in the first half hour because it comes out of nowhere. But this is a Tim Burton flourish. He doesn't know the historical comic book Joker. This is his take on being the goth artist. And you know what? This is my favorite part of the movie. I gotta say, when he decides to go after the people of Gotham through their consumer products, their luxury items, poisoning them with Smilex, that whole bit with action news, I really enjoyed that. This is where I really started to realize there's a comment on 80s lifestyle. Yeah, Candy Walker and Amanda Keeler. I love the reporting, you know, they're like, we're not ruling out drug use, you know, <laughs> like, they, but then, you know, of course, they get three more deaths in with the beauty parlor and suddenly the news anchor woman is cackling and falls over. Again, when I read this scene, it sounded horrifying and frightening. Here, watching it now, I'm going, this is Tim Burton riffing on consumer products in life. But he always does. I mean, a lot of his movies are attacks on bourgeois middle class life. 
I do like how Joker takes over the news station, though, and you get that, love that Joker. It's one of my favorite Nicholson scenes is the dead people talking to him with the big smiles. Yeah, the models are becoming his promotion for Joker products. It's quite fun. And that's what I'm saying. This isn't a dark, gritty Joker or Batman movie at this point, but I'm going with it. It's got this subversive dark sense of humor, you know, with dead models praising the Joker, the person who murdered him. It's not what this film, I think, is remembered by a lot of people as being the dark return of Batman, but it it ain't a bad vision of him. And yet, they all always seem so comely. The news anchors come back, they got pimples and their hair's all mussed up, but they never seem to want to do that to old Vicky when she's off on her date. I thought the exact same thing is like, everybody else is looking really ugly. Did Vicky Vale bring her makeup with her from the what was it, the Bollies or... But yes, yeah, she and Bruce Wayne continue their unlikely courtship and we get to hear great stories from Alfred. Michael Goff, I like him as Alfred. I love his scene early on where we're introduced to Bruce Wayne and he's right behind picking up the pens and the glasses that Bruce just leaves everywhere. He, it's a subtle comedic performance as opposed to Nicholson's that I really enjoy. No, I'm right there with you, Arnie. I like that opening scene and at the party at Wayne Manor. And yeah, I did think it was good physical comedy. Subtle, though. Alfred's important not only for his downplayed, sophisticated humor, but also because we need Wayne to be able to play off somebody. This is the only other person on the planet that knows his secret. So he's so internal, it's the only way we're going to know what Wayne is thinking at any given moment. The important moments are when he has these exchanges with Alfred. And Alfred's kind of what a sage. I mean, I think he's there offering advice in a way, you know, not in a very paternal way, but more just sort of offhanded, just through mere suggestion he sort of guides Wayne through the story and I like him for that reason now Stuart you said during the first half hour you wanted to get to more of what you wanted you know get Jack Nicholson turned into the Joker later it's around an hour into the movie when Vicki Vale thinks she has the day with Bruce Wayne at the museum and Joker comes busting in with party man <laughs> the dark gritty <laughs> Batman once again with the Prince soundtrack yeah I love the soundtrack, don't get me wrong, but man, the music doesn't fit some of these scenes. And it it should be said that this was a commerce decision foisted on Burton. Burton was dealing with a major motion picture, and Warner Brothers said, hey, which one of our artists do you want to have doing the soundtrack? He wasn't going to be able to bring in his cool choices or have it all be orchestral. There was going to be a soundtrack because soundtracks were big, you know, from Saturday Night Fever, Flashdance. They wanted to have pop songs in here, and Prince was the compromise. He was, when they look at the roster, he's like, Paul Simon? No. Eric Clapton? Uh Uh-uh. Madonna? Not really. I mean, this was the compromise of like, I guess Prince is the closest to what I want to have here. But no, this was a horrible moment when I first saw it. The Party Man, great song, horrible moment to see Nicholson burst in with the beret and vandalize the art. It actually was a real damaging scene at the time. Now, when I look at it, knowing that it's coming, it's less of a problem. I accepted that this is the Joker and his MO. And I do like this idea that Tim Burton is putting forth that crime is an art form to this Joker. I'm going with that conception this time more readily. I like the idea of the homicidal artist. Like It's a cool idea. I wish it was developed better because this is where it all seems to really come out. Where you got a collage scene earlier where we found out the Joker was infatuated with Vicky Vale because she's an artist too. She's a photojournalist. But that collage, did you notice? Those are people that have been gassed. 
that was people that have been in the Holocaust and stuff. That wasn't just collages of Vicky. He was cutting out dead corpses and bloated faces and creating a work of canvas out of that. Which is why he likes her photography of all the corpses. Right. And we find out that he's disfigured his girlfriend, and it's just, she's a sketch. I really like this idea. I just wish this was a theme of the film. I wish this was stronger in here. This is really good stuff. I think it is a theme of the film. Again, I said the 80s, the plastic surgery, improving yourself through every means possible, the big thing of the 80s. Here's the Joker taking it to a sick extreme. He's been improved by falling into acid. He's going to try to improve others, both through Smilex, his big weapon of this movie, and through whatever he does to her. What he does to her, I'm not quite sure. There's like some minor scarring. It looks like a blister. I think it was acid. I mean, I think that's his canvas is that he has this flower and it squirts acid and tries to do it to veil. It looks like she might have gotten an acid bomb in the face. Yeah. But I don't understand what Joker's whole point is here with Vale because this is, of course, the scene where the kidnapping should occur. But I don't know what his whole plan was. Was he just going to have dinner? We'll never know because Batman interrupts it. He was there to disfigure her. If Alicia was the sketch, this was the new canvas. This was the prettier blonde that he could do something even worse to. His idea was to take something conventionally beautiful and make it better through, yes, toxic chemicals. That's what happened to him. That's what he's going to do to her. Fortunately, Batman shows up with his wonderful toy. Yeah, there's not even a fight here. He drops in and slides on out. What could he do? I mean, again, this suit, it's so constrictive. It is so great for casting a mood, but so bad for fight choreography. All he can do is take her out on the zip line and throw a smoke bomb. It's really, I think it would be painful for him to engage with these other henchmen. We get that a little bit later. This scene really is introducing us to the Batmobile. Very late in the film, we finally get the iconic vehicle. Well, I I don't know if it's iconic. The Batmobile, in theory, is iconic. This is a whole new take. I don't know. It's got a penis sticking out of the front of it. (laughs) I I do not get this. It looks like an Audi belly button to me. I don't get this Batmobile. It's cool looking. I had a poster of it when I was 12, and I thought it was awesome, but... It makes no damn sense. It's iconic. It is now, yes. To a lot of people, this is to still the Batmobile beyond whatever shark fin Schumacher gave us and beyond the Tumblr. This is still the modern Batmobile. You know, it, it came out before there was a PT Cruiser. There really wasn't a car commercially out that was like that that could remind us of this. It felt like a vehicle that a gangster would drive in the 40s turned future. You know, a steampunk version of a gangster's car. I liked it. I thought it was really cool and i like this chase scene with the mobsters on the way and the police then taking over and chasing batman and the showing the shields on the batmobile i loved the tech of the batmobile as a kid oh yeah those shields were awesome that was like a holy crap moment when i saw this as a kid and then he goes back to the bat cave another huge thing that we get to see in total here from vicky vale's point of view Why does he take Vicky back to the Batcave? I mean, he has this information he wants to give her. He wants to get the film from her, but he didn't need the Batcave to do that, right? Well, he does sexually assault her, doesn't he? Like, he has to go down her shirt there. I mean, why not do that in a private place? He's already been there once. It's not assault. 
<laughs> Not as Batman, though. The film that we're talking about is that she was up on the rooftop, and we're to believe that she had a large camera with a telescopic lens that when the bad guys momentarily got Batman on the ground and pulled back his mask, she got a picture of his face. That's yeah. what he's trying to protect, right? No, that's not it. It's just the fact that there is a Batman. At this point, he was still a rumor. He was something that no one had ever seen. And I thought it was a kind of weird that he wanted to destroy the photographic evidence after he left his car parked downtown and ran around downtown amongst the public. But you don't see his face. It's just that there's photographic evidence that someone was dressing up as a bat. No, no, it was his face. It had to be his face. You don't even see his face. It's pulled up. Right when it's pulled up, the flash goes off. Maybe he doesn't know if it's his face. Maybe it's not a good shot of his face, but he doesn't know. It could have been his face. He was even passed out for it. All he knows is he wakes up, a flash is going off, and his mask is being pulled up. He needs to get that film. Yeah, I think it has to be that, because everyone already knows. The first half hour was, there's no bat, but Commissioner Gordon's seen him, everyone's seen him. There's no point in trying to hide the fact that there's a bat. And this guy is on a PR campaign. I don't think it's bad press for him to make the papers in a photo. It's specifically because it may connect him with Bruce Wayne. But why he needs to do it in the Batcave? Well, we needed to get to the Batcave. I mean, we had kind of seen it in close-up with the monitors, but, you know, now we see that there are actually really live bats here, and it's actually pretty large, and, you know, it's cool. It's just adds to the mystique. It's the right time of the moment. I think that, yeah, it plays weird that he just takes the film and dumps her back home, but he's not ready at this point to tell her his secret. Well, he never tells her his secret, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I gotta say, you know, this really is a Joker movie. We've spent so much time with the Joker at this point, it, it almost seems weird that we're, oh yeah, let's establish all these, like, staples with Batman, his car and his cave. This is a very passive Batman. He is really not accomplishing a lot here. He is reacting to things that Joker is doing, but he himself is not engaged in any kind of real plot here. There doesn't seem to be a real fight. He wants people to literally come to him. I think because he can't move in that suit, but literally <laughs> it feels like so much of this is about the fight coming to him. He does solve the Smilex mystery, but that's all typing on a computer, and we don't even see the light bulb moment where he realizes that. I mean, it's just all so passive. Nicholson is an explosive personality on screen. Keaton can be too, and we get a little bit of that when they finally come head-to-head -head as Bruce Wayne and Joker in Vale's apartment. I've always thought that scene is where Michael Keaton becomes Johnny Dangerously, right there, as every Michael Keaton movie you've ever seen. It just comes out a little bit, and I, I gotta wonder if that's an ad lib. No, I get excited by that moment because I feel like, yeah, it's time. It's time to see some fire in the belly from this guy. He grabs a fire poker. He's like, come at me. You feel like, wow, okay, you're right. This is the wild and crazy Michael Keaton that we know. It was cool that he was holding back. You know, he was letting you know that he was acting and that he wasn't going to do this movie like he would every other one of his movies. That's impressive. But now it's the time to show us this fire. But it's the only scene where we get it. Well, what was the plan? Really hope he shoots me in this three by nine? area of my body <laughs> let's hope he doesn't go for my face <laughs> and it's all because he went there to see vicky to tell her he was batman but this is another scene that really confuses me about the joker because he comes he shoots bruce wayne 
Bruce Wayne is out, presumably dead. Of course, we saw him pick up a metal tray, so we all know it's that old trick. But then Joker just, like, leaves Vicky a present and leaves. He doesn't disfigure her. He doesn't kidnap her. This is where he should kidnap her. Well, it is where he kidnaps her. If you read the book, if you read what the original script was going to do, this was the moment on the horse that they cut. Joker grabs her, she goes away, he does the whole thing where he's drugged the coffee at the police force, so all the cops have fallen unconscious, and he's running down the street, and Batman comes swinging down, almost like Spider-Man, really, and gets on a horse. It seemed very complicated. I remember thinking when I read that part of the book, it seemed like it would be logistically very hard to capture. Well, it was also very expensive, and they didn't end up shooting it. But this is, yeah, where Sean Young broke her leg rehearsing it, if that's indeed what happened. That sounds like the one scene that may have been inspired by The Dark Knight Returns, which was supposedly the big inspiration for this film, because you do get Batman on a horse in that comic book. I guess, yes, if there'd been a second Batman rescue avail, it would have then just been redundant instead of pointless. (laughs) Yeah, and again, to the pass of Batman, Batman shows up to play possum and sneak away. Yeah, he jumps out a window. He couldn't have just said, yeah, Vic, I put this in my shirt. And by the way, I came to tell you I'm Batman, which is why I knew to put this in my shirt. Well, he tried, but then again, Alfred is the one that has to be the one to to let her in the Batcave and blow the secret. And let me just say, this is the point of the movie where the movie falls apart for me. Up till this point, I found Nicholson hammy, but enjoyable. I've been completely fine with Keaton in all of his parts. The only, I actually don't like it when he goes, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Cause it's so outside the character he's established. It was like a different character cameoing in Batman. But here is where writer Sam Hamm basically goes, you got problems with the rest of this. They changed my script. This was not what I wrote. There was a writer strike in 88 when this was being filmed. Ham was unable to consult. Burton didn't like what was there. He brought in his Beetlejuice writer to unofficially rewrite all these endings. And the movies, for the most part, has been style over substance thus far. After this point, there is no substance. You got Vicky Vale just wandering into the Batcave. Nobody's surprised by this. She doesn't seem surprised he's Batman. He doesn't seem surprised to see her there. There's this beat missing. I mean, this should be a big underlined moment. This is a big reveal. You are the person that I'm falling in love with. You're also this person I've idealized that brought me here. I mean, it should be a big moment. And instead, she's just having some contrived soap opera dialogue about, are we going to try to love one another? I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, really? Like, you should be on the floor going, what the hell is this guy? And yeah, it's just played wrong. Yeah, that would make sense if this was a Batman movie, which it's not. Hold on now, Jacob. The problem is, so much of this movie, about a third of this movie, has been Bruce Wayne and Vicky Vale. And all around Vicky Vale. And if this isn't a Batman Bruce Wayne movie, what's the point of even having her there? The fact that they've spent so much time on this relationship, it's at least a 45-55 split Batman to Joker. Joker gets all the glorious scenes, but there's this whole subplot that's only there to character develop Bruce Wayne, but it does so in a way that has no payoff. I'm agreeing with you. Dude, it's, I don't think Burton cares about this part. He doesn't care about the beautiful people getting together and falling in love. That's not who he is. I mean, I've seen Nightmare Before Christmas and Corpse Bride and other things he's directed and produced. He's all about the ugly people. I, I yes. think he'd much rather have disfigured Vicky Bell get together with the Joker than have to have this 
forced, contrived love story? Yes, if you can call it that. <laughs> yeah, I think Wayne is probably closer to Burton's actual personality, but Joker who is who he wants to be. I think they're both Tim Burton, but it's very clear that this movie is enamored with Nicholson and that it has a different energy when Nicholson is on the screen than any time it's dealing with Bruce Wayne stuff. And, you know, I like the flashback when we finally see the death scene and all of that. The young Jack Nicholson that they got there. Uh, all of that is, is well played and creepy. It's enough. I don't need any more of the backstory. I think it works, but I'm not just because I've seen that backstory ready to say because I've accepted it. Vicki Vale should be just as nonchalant about it. I mean, this should be a big moment. It's not. And you mentioned that backstory. This is another addition by Burton. I really hate unlikely contrivances in films. The fact that the Joker just happened to be the random thug that killed Batman's parents, even when I was 14, I'm like... Yeah, that makes no freaking sense. Yeah, I hate this. Really? I think it's important. I mean, it's dialectic. Who made who? I mean, they get to it when they're battling at the end. Joker is saying, you made me by dropping me in the acid, but he actually made Batman by killing his parent. One, I would like that if Jack had targeted the Waynes for being really rich, and it was a targeted thing instead of a random mugging. Two, I would love the diametric opposition of who made who if it wasn't called out in dialogue in the film. You made me, I made you! Again, I think this is something that Burton took from The Killing Joke, and one of the themes there was, what can one bad day do to you? And really, that's the story of the Joker and the Batman. Batman had a really bad day as a kid and decided to fix it, to stop crime. The Joker had a really bad day, and he becomes a murderous clown. That's enough of the theme to connect these two characters. I don't need them actually creating each other. That's a problem for me. It's too Hollywood. We say Burton's so anti-establishment, anti-Hollywood, but this is such a Hollywood storyline to me. You know, the have you ever danced with the devil? And that brings back this memory. And uh, I just hate this development. And he says, I always ask that of all my prey. But you've never heard it before, even though I've killed 20 people so far this movie. It really feels forced. And it bothers me. That is so goddamn random. I like it. It's a simple answer, and it fits within this conception of Batman. It may not be the Batman that we wanted, but it's the one that we've been given here. I mean, <laughs> That's a quote, a later <laughs> Batman film. <laughs> and here's the biggest problem for me. Again, trying to divorce this from comic Batman. Once Bruce Wayne makes this connection, he becomes a homicidal maniac. Like, now it's all about revenge, the rest of this film. I'm not having a problem with that. I think that it would be nice to see a little bit more bloodthirstiness in him. I'd like to see him a little bit more charged up. I want the guy to have a pulse. He's sitting there with his, you know, doing the Rodan thinkers pose for so long. <laughs> Go fight. Do something. And let's face it, the scene where he does something is awesome because he does it in the Batmobile. The shields have a purpose. He drops bombs and blows up. He is not in that vehicle. I was so mad to see that when the Batmobile barrels out of Axis chemicals after leveling it to the ground, nope, that was all on remote control. Somebody else will do this. You know, I'm mad at this Bruce Wayne for allowing other people to do his fighting for him. But it's him. I mean, he's controlling the remote. I need action, direct response from this guy. This guy is giving me nothing. But he's supposed to be tech. He's still blew it up and it's still visually exciting and you think he's in that car that's going through all the explosions 
Yeah, it's cool. I, I love it when the machine guns pop out and they bullet hole their way through the doors and these little grenades jump. It's cool. But yeah, he comes off as bloodthirsty and it's just a weird feeling seeing Batman just straight up murdering people. I think you're right about one thing. It's very weird to see Batman as this non-heroic. He does kind of come here to save the people at the very end. But you're right. It seems more driven by his own personal angst. One wonders if he had not heard the devil in the pale moon light comment in Vicky's apartment and made that connection, would he have been rallied to protect Gotham at that moment from Joker? Really, if this Batman was in Batman 66, he'd have been like, ah, screw the ducks. I want to get rid of this bomb. (laughs) This is a different Batman. Yeah, he's not heroic. Well, I think he would have still been rallied because he knows it's this whole parade. He's been called out by this point. Yes, he had to be called out. He's not just going to go stop the Joker. The Joker has to call him out and say, come fight me. I like that little fireside chat he televised. It was funny. (laughs) A nice another Nicholson moment. Here's the thing. You say he's non-heroic. Taking into account the time, this is what heroes did to me. This is post-Rambo. This is post-Die Hard. The hero should kill the villain. And this was Burton's thing, too, is if you don't kill the villain, they're just going to get out of jail and there's going to be the sequel. Burton wanted finality, and I like that finality. This may be the first time I've seen a superhero just be like, screw it, I'm going to kill my enemies. But I liked it. It's what I wanted of my action movie, superhero or not. I agree with you, Arnie. In 89, this is what I would have expected from Batman. Now approaching this, I have a different take on the character. And that's what I'm saying. If you're hardcore Batman comic book purist, not recommended. I'm just going to say it now. This is a different take on the character. But then we get to another Prince song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who do you trust? Hubba hubba. And another Burton knock on commerce. Gotham has been poisoned by the Joker. He does one TV commercial and flesh makeup and promises to throw 20 million out at them and all is forgiven. They're all there to grab it. Sure. Yay. You know, these people deserve to die. I almost feel like Burton is agreeing with Joker's choice to gas the hell out of the city if they're going to be this self-serving and greedy. And I love the balloons. I got to say, I'm thinking Burton must have designed them, but I love the Joker. Joker balloon in the crying baby. I do too. That baby balloon is the creepiest thing in the movie (laughs) with its one tooth. And then the bat plane. (laughs) I love that Batman buys so much into the PR hype that he goes and makes his own symbol on the moon. Like that was an (laughs) awesome scene as a kid. Like, yeah, there's an evil clown gassing everyone, but I got to strike a pose. (laughs) Even again at 14 years old, I'm like the Batmobile can withstand massive explosions and drive away without a scratch. Not even the enamel, not even a tire punctured. The bat plane seems singly designed to fly between buildings and steal evil balloons before being (laughs) shot down. Yeah, I thought that was really forward thinking to come up with putting scissors in your airplane, just in case. Just in case there's some helium balloons I need to take out. Hey, Adam West would have had it. He would have had scissors specifically for balloons and another one for creating paper dolls. I mean, he would have had them all. But And they would have been labeled. Yes. <laughs> you are wrong if you think that this movie is much tonally darker than what it was done in the 60s. This is still camp. This is still silliness. This is still largely, I would say, one foot in comedy. But because of the way it looks, it makes us feel different about it, watching it viscerally. 
And again, for the time, it was probably very cutting edge. By this point, we've seen it aped so much and seen films so much darker that this is about as dark as that crying baby balloon. Then he pulls out a giant gun from his pants. And I mean that literally. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure that it infuriates most people that he takes out the bat plane with one bullet. But what makes me livid, much more livid than that, is that he can walk with that gun in his pants? No. Is that Batman has Joker in his sights, like <laughs> in the crosshairs, right there, boop, 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 cannot miss, fires six times, shoots missiles, <laughs> missiles that blow up around you. How did it not calibrate that correctly? How could he not hit Joker? That drives me nuts. It drove me nuts at the time. And then, of course, it's a mannequin standing there with explosions around it, so it doesn't even look good. I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. He put so much money into that Batmobile, but the Batplane seems like a rush job. Didn't get the targeting aligned. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's a cool plane. It's a cool concept, but this is infuriating. You realize they did it just to get rid of the balloons, and really, there's nothing else to do. They want to have a fair fight. They need to get these mano a mano, so we got to get them out of the plane. And so here's their lame brain way of doing that. I always like the Joker's big gun. I don't know why that would blow up an airplane, but I like that he has a really long gun in his pants. It's fitting with a clown. That's a killer. I want to talk about two minor characters we've largely ignored this podcast who get major scenes here, though, right after Batman steals the Smilex balloons. The first is Knox. As Batman's vamping against the moon, Knox puts Vale in the car and... Something I hadn't gotten from that character at all, he grabs a mask out of his trunk and a stick and starts to go beat the Joker's thugs like he's going to save the day. Yeah, finally an active hero in this film. <laughs> from someone that we don't actively like very much. Yeah, I not like really what Knox has brought here. I think he's only here in that it allows Vicky to have someone to talk to as she's figuring out the mystery that is Wayne and Batman. But he himself is comic relief. But this movie already has a lot of comic relief. I don't think Knox is doing much about that. I saw him as the Jack McGee. Like, always chasing the Batman. Always goes back to Bixby for you. <laughs> I, I, to me, a little more Jimmy Olsen. You know, he's the reporter that never quite ahead of the story here. But however you want to see him, I think it's important to realize that originally he was going to get it in this yeah. scene. They were going to take him out. He was going to die in some way, and heroically or not. But this character was not going to live on. The funniest part is Burton's like, nah, I like Robert Wool. I like what he does. Let's bring him back for the sequel. Make him live. You never see him again. <laughs> I'm fine with that. In fact, even here, he's being heroic, and then finally he can be heroic no more. Batman gets the balloons. He jumps on top of the car Vicky Vale is driving away in. He gets literally thrown in the garbage. <laughs> and we don't see him until the end of the film. Yeah. The other minor character I want to talk about is Bob. Bob the Goon. I love Bob the Goon. Bob got his own toy. Yeah, Bob the Goon rocks. He's there from the very First scene. Anytime Jack is in trouble, Bob has Jack's back. Bob is the most loyal goon you could ever, ever have. He pulls a gun on Eckhart at the beginning. When Jack's about to get captured by Batman, he pulls a gun on Gordon. Bob saved Jack's ass so many times. And because... Batman has a bat plane. Jack's going to off Bob the Goon, the only loyal person in his life. I dare say Joker could have won everything if Bob had lived. It's this action that causes the Joker's <laughs> downfall. 
He needed someone to have his back. I, I agree with that. But this is in keeping with the Joker. I agree. It plays weird. It's, I think, meant to be funny because it's unexpected, but it's almost too out of character. We know that Joker is a, a person that thrives on chaos and what an odd choice to kill his most lawyer follower. But it doesn't play right, right? No, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, and why Bob, of all people? I mean, in a way, it kind of plays, because Grissom had that moment with Jack, you are my number one. And then Jack plays the same thing, all breathy with Bob, and then, much like Grissom tried to kill Jack, Jack kills Bob. But I think there should have been something more to it. Either that or Nicholson played it wrong. Nicholson was playing it still too comedic, when he should have come off as legitimately furious that his plan was thwarted again. Yeah. And it's just such a short moment. But yeah, I do think had Bob been with him to go up to the Belfry and Jack had one more person with his back, he would have lived. It's killing Bob that he kills himself. That's far more symbolic to me than he killed Bruce Wayne's parents. <laughs> okay. I'm not willing to go that far. He finally kidnaps Vicki Vale, which has been far too long coming. What, we got 10 minutes left in the film? <laughs> and I have to say another thing I haven't mentioned that's really bothered me in this movie. I don't know that Kim Basinger did much in this role, but she was paid a lot of money to scream her lungs out, and I got really annoyed by it. (laughs) Her constant shrill shriek, and it just continues as they go up this tower. I'm like, just kill her. Just please kill her. Shut her up. What's she supposed to do, sing? (laughs) Which she actually does, if you listen to the... 20-minute version of Scandalous, she cracks open a case of honey with Prince, and they pour it all over each other as they sing. (laughs) It's drastically awful. (laughs) I want to hear that. (laughs) No, you don't. But her performance has now come to annoy me. But we finally get our bat fight scenes, and I know we've said he can't move very well in the suit, but the stuntmen do pretty well. I'm always impressed. And Batman does it like three times this movie when in that suit, he's able to kick up to his own face. He kicks three different people in the face. He's fighting ninjas. Where did they come from? That We have seen clearly they walked a long way to get up to the top. Two people, Joker and Vicky. <laughs> Batman finally reaches up there. Suddenly ninjas. What? <laughs> That's no. what ninjas do. Where? <laughs> when? They're ninjas. This is If you saw a ninja, they wouldn't be a good ninja. Ninja. Oh, uh, All I could think of when watching this was the Batman video game for Nintendo that had these ninjas in it. That's all it felt like to me was the scene from a video game. And yet again, here's a bad guy with knives running at Batman and Batman standing there and basically hitting him with his fisticuffs <laughs> and sparks happening. I mean, they cannot make this suit work in the action. And it wasn't meant to do that. It was meant to visually impress. And every time they have to engage Batman in a fight scene, it's lame. I'm glad that at least they had these ninjas because, come on, what fight was the Joker really going to put up? We never see him as a capable hand-to-hand combatant. Batman's got armor. Joker's got, what, some glasses that he puts on? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a good gag, but I'm glad there was some fight because once Batman gets to the Joker. You're right. The Joker has never been a brawler. That's not his strength. He's cunning and he has a gun and he has goons. But when it gets down to the two of them, it's almost sad. You almost feel bad for Joker. He does almost get a blowjob, though, from Vicky Vale, right? Like, <laughs> she goes down, and then Batman shows up. Though. Well, I think he thought he was going to. He gets doubly screwed in this deal. I do love when she's kissing his coat that she takes a moment to get a hair out of her teeth, though. <laughs> 
You know, they had to have it, right? If his signature line is dancing the devil in the pale moonlight, we actually had to have a dance here. I mean, they're literalizing what's going on here, going through the psychology of who made who first. I mean, it's a battle that needs to happen. I have no problem with it, but I'm not sure that Keaton is any more intimidating than Nicholson. He's certainly not any taller. It's just the fact that, yeah, Batman has cooler toys and a more durable suit. Still, Joker gets them hanging off of the edge of the building. He's the one that looks like he's going to get away. Yeah, and he pretty much does if Batman hadn't roped his ankle, pretty much ensuring his death. Yeah, the Joker's henchmen are to blame here. They should have lowered <laughs> that helicopter a little bit, and so he's not just hanging by his hands there. He should have been able to get a foothold on that ladder. Had Bob been on that helicopter, it go. all would have been okay. He was a licensed helicopter pilot, and that was the downfall. <laughs> they had to go with the backup guy. I don't know. It's a little anticlimactic. I mean, on one hand, there's poetry and that Joker falls yet again. He fell into the acid. He falls to the ground. I don't have a problem with that. But Batman takes him out with a gargoyle. Batman is a gargoyle. At this point, can we just say that that's all he's good for? He's intimidation (laughs) without any fight. I don't know what I wanted to happen here, but I wanted it to be more cathartic than, oh, let me tie this heavy stone object to your foot. But again, with Joker not being that much of a combatant, I got what I wanted out of the action scenes of the end. The way it's edited makes Batman look like he's doing more than he is, and it's a fun fight through the goons. By the time he gets to Joker, it's time for it to end. They do have that moment where you think Batman and Vale are going to follow Joker down, but of course he has yet another, what do you even call that, harpoon gun? Grappling hook, toy. Yeah, (laughs) toy. A wonderful toy. And then that's basically it. He gives the city's copious politicians, of whom there were so many we didn't even discuss them, Commissioner Gordon, Harvey Dent, and the mayor, get a bat signal for the next movie. Vicky Vale gets a new hairdo and goes off to see Bruce. While Bruce stands at attention looking at the bat signal? <laughs> He's practicing. I guess, like... <laughs> I really felt Burton wanted to end this movie with the Joker crushed into the ground without laughing, going off on the tape recorder. Like, that seems like a much more appropriate ending for this film. Like, the rest is like, well, it is a Batman film. We should show that people kind of embraced him at the end. No doubt about it. Yes. When Joker's out of the screen, you know, that's my review for the whole movie. It's just a different, lesser movie. The fun of this movie is Nicholson. And when we got to hit the marks and get the bat signal and get all the things that make Batman cool, well, he just doesn't sell it quite as well. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Batman, Jacob? When the Joker says one of his most iconic lines, have you ever danced with the devil by the pale moonlight? He says... I don't really know what it means. I just like the sound of it. And I feel that's a pretty good summary of this movie. I don't know what everything means or why certain things are happening, but I like how it looks. I like the tone and the mood. We always have this debate, style over substance. Well, I like Tim Burton's vision. I think it's stronger the first two-thirds of the film. By the end of this film, just the storytelling for me becomes problematic. We haven't seen Batman do much. He becomes homicidal murder by the end. I like this movie if it was called the joker i think this is a great joker film you know with batman 66 
maybe nostalgia tainted my review a little bit. I'm still sitting next to it, and I thought maybe I'd have the same problem here because this was such a big movie for me. No, I could say there's not a whole lot of this nostalgia there for me. I'm coming at this with different eyes, and if you want a great sense of just style, if you want something to come off the comic book page and to be these great gothic skyscrapers and this over-the-top Joker, I think this is the film for you. I think there's enough here to enjoy. It's by far not a perfect film, but I was still entertained by it, even 20-plus years later. So I'm going to give this a recommend. Stuart. When I originally saw it, after having bought the shirt, bought the comic book cards, bought everything, I was crushed. I was like, this isn't the movie that I wanted. And I remember walking out thinking it was pretty good. And by the end of the summer, I was much more into the abyss. I turned on Batman because the hype had made me think it was going to be something darker and more foreboding than it really ended up being. I don't have those expectations now, and I have different Batman movies to go to if I want to experience that Batman. So what do I appreciate about Batman 89? Well, it's a vision. Just as you said, it is Burton in total, and much more Burton in story than I remembered. You know, these riffs on commerce and the Joker's pranks here really are the fun and the light of this movie. I'm not an action movie guy, so I'm okay with a movie about architecture. This is a movie about mood and style with a stone statue as the hero. If that doesn't appeal to you, if you want a more active Batman, this one's not going to work. But if you're into the mood, and it's hard to imagine you wouldn't be at least a little impressed with what they've done visually here, I give it a mild recommend. I think Batman 89 is worth seeing. When I saw this film in 89, I went in... A little reluctant, and I walked out thinking I was really impressed with it. It didn't become a lifestyle for me. I never went and picked up a comic, but I really liked it then. And subsequent viewings on VHS really made it grow in my esteem and my love for Burton, which would peak the next year with Edward Scissorhands, really had me digging this movie. And when I first revisited it a couple years ago, I was shocked at how it didn't hold up to my memory of how good it was and how campy it was and how dark it wasn't. But yeah, like you've both said, there's a lot of things here that are good and they're basically Burton things. I love 80s Burton. I love Beetlejuice. I think Beetlejuice is his best film. I think this is his second best film. I really think that the style he brings to it, the Elfman score, the look of it, Sure, Batman doesn't move all that well, but he moves well enough the way it's edited. The Batmobile is cool enough. It falls apart story-wise at the end, but yeah, I'm going to recommend it. Absolutely. So guys, thank you for joining me for this review, and I'm glad to see you're both wearing the sequined Arnie jackets I sent you. (laughs) I like the caricature patch that's on it. (laughs) Can they pick that up in the now-playing store? They have to go and check. Maybe. Maybe we can get one on there. (laughs) But next week, Batman returns, and so do we. And also, I have to say, it didn't do this for me in 89. It did this for me now. I am finally going to do something I've never done and read some Batman comics. I am going to go pick up The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke. And Jacob, you want to join me over at Books and Nachos since you're the one who knows Batman comics and can fill me in on the things I don't understand? Seeing that I have an oversized $100 plus version of The Dark Knight Returns, yeah, I'd love to join you. I'd love to put that to use finally. Wow. All right. So you'll be able to hear us over at Books and Nachos discussing these comics. And Stuart, they can hear you there too. 
That's true. Because Friday, our extra special donors are going to listen to our thoughts on E.T., I thought it might be worthwhile to check out E.T.'s sequel voyage. E.T. and the Book of the Green Planet. It was the only sequel we're ever going to get endorsed by Spielberg based on our little guy from outer space and I'll be reviewing his adventures on his home world over there at Books and Notches. I owned that book and couldn't get past page four. I both admire you and can't wait to hear your review. <laughs> and for those who want to hear our review of the Spielberg films E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind and War of the Worlds, that is a thank you gift for those who donate $25 or more by clicking the donate button at nowplayingpodcast.com in addition to the alien podcast you get if you just want the alien podcast aliens 1 through 4 plus prometheus you'll get aliens 1 through 4 in a nice pretty package with a bow on top and we will be giving prometheus to those who donate $10 or more before the end of june so we thank all of our donors for their support please check us out at books nachos.com and head to nowplayingpodcast.com we'll have all the details there about our donation thank you podcasts and we thank you for your support all right two for two this is already going better than marvel i'm excited let's keep it going will stewart recommend batman returns will jacob enjoy danny devito's performance find out next week same bat day same bat website We've received a letter from Batman this morning. Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned the rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again to cast a shadow on the heart of the city, call me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Well, that was very brief. Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles, another day of wine and roses. In your case, beer and pizza. <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie, culminating in a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. <laughs> you can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing Podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. What is it you really came here for? While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. <laughs> the link to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? Let's consummate our fiendish union. 
You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shopping. Yes, sir. Now Playing's Batman Retrospective Series is edited by Brock, Alex, Nick, and Arnie. They scream and they cry. Now playing credit narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Batman and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. Even though I guess what Gotham is supposed to be New York or or a thinly veiled version of New York, according to some guy who trapped my wife at a line in Comic Con, I will quote him with lisp: um, <laughs> "Metropolis is New York, and Gotham City is Chicago." <laughs> wow, you're okay. quoting him, so it's okay to do that. <laughs> And then he goes and does what we all want to do and kills Jack Valance. 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 <laughs> Who's Jack Valance? He's like a, he's a salesman, isn't he? Don't know. <laughs> Vicky Vale thinks she's going on a date with Bruce to a museum. Is that how you say museum? Museum? Is that a Midwest thing? <laughs> it is. Okay. I'll, I, I didn't know if he's just messing up the word or not. <laughs> hey, you say stereo, so it's all good. All right. <laughs> museum. All right. Museum? Is that how it is? No, that's how I you say, say museum. It. E, yeah, it's a hard E for me. Yeah. Museum? Yeah. yeah. Or is it museum? Museum. Museum. <laughs> museum. All right. Sounds like a Joker product. <laughs> Love that museum. Vicky Vale thinks she has a date with Bruce Wayne at the. Guggenheim. <laughs> now I'm laughing like Nicholson and I can't get the line out. Can somebody else? All right, here. The Dark Knight Returns being the Frank Miller. Yes. Comic, just to clarify, and not the movie we're going to see. Well, that's Dark Knight Rises anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, just to, uh, clarifying for people like me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, hold I, on, I, real quick, three things. Or, I think three. One- <laughs> <laughs> quick rethink, I got a laundry list. 